You're listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast with Chris Kidwell and Sam Glover. Sam, we're starting to see uh, some of the more significant consequences uh, of what happened up in Minneapolis and the reaction to it uh, start to take place or at least start to be considered. Um, We are, as we've seen from time to time with incidents like this, uh, but perhaps no more demonstrably than now, seeing uh, a sort of movement to, at the very least, reform uh, police departments in, in many different cities. Uh, and in some cases, and in some cities, Minneapolis being chief among them right now, a call to defund uh, the police. Um, now, when I first heard that term, I was a little shocked, uh, and then I did a little bit of exploration, and defund the police doesn't necessarily mean everything that you think it means when you first hear that phrase, um, although we'll see what ends up happening in Minneapolis, because it's a little bit closer to the extreme uh, than it would otherwise be. Sam, um, well, let's start here. What uh, what What are people suggesting when they talk about defunding the police? Um, and where do you think the line is as far as what is reasonable and what is not reasonable when it comes to, uh, police reform? Well, let me, uh, answer the first part of that question by reading a letter from an organization called defund Oxford PD. Now, I don't know how big of an organization that is. It has an email address and they have a formal like form letter. And it reads, a letter to demand defunding of the Oxford Police Department. This is in Oxford, Mississippi, for reference. Dear Oxford, Mississippi Board of Aldermen, my name is, and I am a community member of Oxford, Mississippi. In the past two years, the Board of Aldermen approved a $750,000 increase to the Oxford Police Department, making the OPD the largest recipient of funding in the city. This is of great concern, as I believe the Oxford Police Department is responsible for great ill in this community that includes, but is not limited to, the murder and marginalization of Black residents, gross mishandling and cruelty in dealing with victims of sexual violence and harassment, and material damage to the lives of Oxford citizens through dishonest and predatory policing in issues of low-level drug offenses. All of these grievances with the Oxford Police Department are based on easily accessible public records that are hyperlinked above, as well as the testimony of Oxford community members that can be reviewed in full detail below. As the body that determines our city's funding, please read and fully consider the brave and generous testimonies of these individuals. In light of recent events and the specific history of racial violence and systemic oppression in Mississippi, as well as in the wider United States, it is imperative that we divest ourselves from the punitive and harmful structures of policing. I do not believe police reform is the answer, but rather the immediate defunding and eventual abolition of the police, as well as the allocation of funding to services that protect and strengthen all members of our community, especially those whom the current structures most harm. To this end, we demand the following actions from the Board of Aldermen. One. Vote no on all increases to police budgets. Two, vote yes to decrease police spending and budgets with the goal of abolition within the next five years. 
Three, vote yes to increase spending on services that have been proven to strengthen communities, social work and mental health care professionals, public housing initiatives, and education. Four, invest in programs that aid victims of racial and sexual violence without police intervention. Five, create a new alderman position whose sole duty is to hear and convey concerns related to police misconduct, brutality, or violence, whether anonymous or named. Oxford, though plagued by a history of profound injustice and inequity, remains in the minds of many a site of Mississippi's most progressive hope. This perception will be a shameful lie so long as the city continues to fund the Oxford Police Department and its perpetuation of structural violence. So, some people, you're correct, when they say defund the police, they say defund because decrease the budget of, divert budget decreases towards community efforts, and mobilize non-law enforcement solutions, etc. Not only doesn't fit on a protest sign, it doesn't sound as catchy. So there's that. But there are some who are genuinely calling for the abolition of police departments. Here is the thing, Chris. You can probably take a guess as to what my response to the phrase defund the police is. Would you like to try? I'm going to let you just uh, just speak for yourself here. I'm not getting in the way right now. <laughs> Fair enough. I hear defund the police and I think absolutely. And then privatize it. Now, usually when I say privatize or when anyone else uh, of my uh, political persuasions says privatize the police, the people saying defund the police turn around and say, are you insane? You can't do that. And I say that's rich coming from the people saying defund the police. But more seriously, I'm 100 percent on board with abolishing police departments if we get to keep the money that would otherwise be taken from us via taxation to fund a police department. That's not what's going to happen, though. With these movements, defunding the police is nothing more than rerouting funding. Even if it's not a total abolition, it is rerouting money away from those people, firstly. Secondly, how are you going to get those funds without law enforcement on the ground? And you might say, well, we're just getting rid of police departments. We're not getting rid of the FBI or other law enforcement bodies. Okay, then you've only pushed the problem back a step because eventually you're going to have to send someone to enforce your will. And I have nothing against social workers. They're great people that take on a great and sometimes thankless job. They're not going to enforce rules and regulations. They're not going to go door to door and say, hey, you didn't pay your taxes this year. So we're going we're doing a in-home visit to ask you to because they're going to get a door shut in their face. And they're social workers. They're not trained, nor should they be trained to deal with that sort of thing. As much as these people want to talk about getting rid of systemic violence, the problem that they will never get past is that their desires require systemic violence. They will always have to have someone with a gun 
to make other people give them what they need to get what they want. And so the, this, these proposals are not to be taken seriously as they are, because as much as they're saying defund the police, okay, who's going to enforce your precious gun laws? Who's going to enforce your truancy laws about requiring minority parents to send their children to public schools that historically have a pattern of failing minorities? Because social workers can't, they can censure or lecture, but they can't come and say, if you don't make your kid go to school, we're taking you to prison, which is an actual thing that can happen with truancy laws, which, by the way, for Democrats is something that Kamala Harris wanted to enforce rigorously while she was attorney general. And so I am for the abolition of police departments and a lot of other things. But more so than that, I want the abolition of the state's monopoly on force. And until that's on the table, this is just this is just meaningless gesturing. It's just posturing, genuflecting, whatever term you want to attach to it, because as long as people insist on having a state to enforce their preferences and their will and their ideology, you have to have people who can exert force to make it happen. It will not happen any other way, because as long as the state exists, there are going to be people who disagree with the state or who disagree with how the state should be run. And really, that's the fundamental problem. They don't want to defund the ability to make people obey laws, whether they're just or unjust. They want to reroute money that is taken by force so that they can empower other people with the ability to make their ends and their goals happen. It's just rearranging power. It's no better than, I don't even remember the company's name anymore, but it was a telecom company and they just were always getting canned in their reviews and trash. Like this is an awful company. They're terrible. Their customer service is awful. And then they rebranded as Spectrum. And it's like, oh, we're not that telecom company anymore. We're Spectrum. We're new and we're better. And then they do the same thing. And it's because telecom's hard to get into. So they end up having a functional monopoly. Until we break the monopoly on force, this is all meaningless. You know, the discussion surrounding it, there, there's sort of two levels to this that you hinted at. Um, there's defund the police on one level, which is really not defunding the police so much as it is just evaluating uh, different parts of the law enforcement budget um, and evaluating uh, just just doing a re reevaluation as a whole of uh, everything that goes into law enforcement. Um, you know, and, and we talked about some of that last week with regard to uh, some of the equipment uh, that law enforcement in cert certain cities uh, have access to. You know, and and some of the money that's required to uh, to purchase and maintain uh, some of that equipment that 
there's a good argument to be made that law enforcement doesn't necessarily need. Um, and so when some people say defund the police, they're really talking less about abolishing it, like you said, and more about um, more about, you know, just scrutinizing more uh, the budget. Uh, and I'm for that because like you, I'm for that with regard to anything funded uh, through tax dollars. Um, the fact that the grossest negligence of money in our country uh, is, you know, our money is taxpayer money. Uh, the grossest misuse of money, uh, you know, you, people people spend it like it's not their own money because, well, you know, it gets spent because it's not theirs. It's it's ours. And so I'm I'm for scrutinizing and, and reviewing uh, anything having to do, do with tax dollars. I do think, however, the uh, the proposition to abolish law enforcement, in addition to you pointing at it being somewhat short sighted, um, it, it comes across as very emotional uh, to me um, that, you know, the police are causing all this pro all these problems. Let's get rid of the police. Um, it's a very almost visceral reaction uh, to something truly horrible that's happened. Uh, but it's but it's a conclusion that hasn't really been thought through. I don't, I don't think um, that, you know, like you said, you still have the problem of, OK, well, how do you enforce the laws that you want to enforce? Um, you know, it's uh, I, I mean, if you want to nail down one of the core issues here, um, you know, if a random civilian were to could uh, commit a hate crime. Uh, a racially motivated hate crime, how do you enforce or inflict any sort of punishment on that person? Um, how, how do you enforce any law that you have about that? Uh, now, the, there's a cheeky counter there that in some circumstances that hasn't happened anyway, so why would it be any different? At least this way the police wouldn't do it. But it's just that. That's just a cheeky response. It's not really a thoughtful one. Um, you know, it, and so thinking through these things this is something that you know any decisions that are made right now about the long-term future of law enforcement uh, about the long-term future at least in some cities of even having a city level police department um this is a situation i think where people and especially um leaders in cities would do well to be patient um and see how things blow over um and see see exactly uh, what happens, because in part, a lot of what needs to be done might be based off of what happens with the George Floyd trial, too. Uh, we mentioned this, I think, two weeks ago, uh, maybe just last week. But with this trial, if 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 the Justice Department does its job, uh, this is, it would be a massive deterrent towards things like this happening again. Um, it wouldn't it wouldn't completely fix all those problems. Uh, and certainly there might be other problems that arise. But if the Justice Department does its job, then, you know, the, the conversation probably softens a little bit moving forward, because if the Justice Department had done its job in the countless number of examples we have going back the past seven years or so, uh, then the discussion surrounding this would be a lot less, uh, we'll say, emotionally charged. Um, you know, we, we could say, okay, well, 
uh, these officers did these terrible things and they were punished accordingly for it. Um, and so I, I think a lot of the abolition discussion, like you said, is short sighted <clears throat> or at least sort of summarizing what you said. It comes across as short sighted. And then beyond that, it it's also I. It just it it's not. It just comes across as a very, very, very emotional decision to make. Now, you know, some some of the people that are suggesting that are in uh, uh, they're holding public office. And I can't help but wonder if some of that's for political gain. In fact, I don't really wonder about that. I'm almost certain that's true. Uh, But if leaders would come out. Hold public office. And. Show a little bit of patience and wait and see what happens. I, I forget who the governor is up in Minneapolis. Um, and, you know, he, he came out and he talked about how, you know, he, he wanted to see. Well, I better not put words into his mouth, uh, but he was for the investigation of this. He called it murder. Uh, and he said a lot of the right things. Um and then now the city council up in Minneapolis has come out, uh, by and large, not not unanimously, but by and large in support of uh, defunding. And it sounds like straight up abolishing their police department. Um, and and that's that's a that just comes across as a bit of a jump. Uh, and am I, am I wrong in thinking that? Am I misguided there? It just. It, it, it comes across as a little bit too much of a jump for me to be terrifically comfortable with. I would agree, but uh, I'll, I'll go a bit further uh, because, of course, I will, in saying that a lot of it comes off as very insincere. There's little, to me at least, in way of sincerity in these responses from Uh, visible political figures and even beyond that and again I know that there are going to be some that will discredit what I'm saying because I'm speaking as a white man from a place of privilege that sort of thing but for me the the question of systemic racism in law enforcement and this or that when people say, well, we've had se- we've had seven years or this and that, I, I say, no, we haven't. We've had hundreds of years of people being brutalized by the state. And when a minority is present in a nation or group or city or whatever, a majority culture will invariably turn itself on that ma- minority culture. And for me, when I see uh, when I see something like Chauvin or I uh, see uh, Ahmed Arbery or I see this or that or especially police involved uh, killings and murders. For me, asking the racism question. Isn't quite far enough. When when I look at Derek Chauvin. My question ultimately isn't why did he feel like he needed to kill a black man or why did he do that to a black man? It's why did we give him the authority 
to enact violence against someone for a victimless crime to start with. Because Floyd, again, was being placed under arrest for using a counterfeit bill. And that caused a short-term financial difficulty for a business, but it was also a 20. Any company that can't recover from a singular counterfeit $20 bill, that's not their worry. They're going to go out of business. So why do we send men with guns after black people or anyone for that matter for a crime that does not involve bodily harm? And why do we just accept that? Why do we accept that we have men with guns positioned across our cities waiting, looking for things to do, looking for opportunities to exert force? It creates an incredibly dangerous situation anyway. And as a point of comparison, some people will say that it's not a fair comparison, but that's uh, their choice and their argument to make. Firefighters, for instance. Firefighters don't drive around in their trucks looking for fires. And obviously, of course, firefighting is different from law enforcement, but both are tax funded. Both have a great deal of authority. I mean, a fireman can, again, in the right situation, break your door down with a fire axe, and they're more than allowed to do that. Granted, there has to be, they have to be called to the scene, that sort of thing. But for me, the question is always going to come back to, okay, if we are sincere in this, why stop at the racism part of systemic racism? Because, and I'm borrowing the words of Eric July here, Without the state, without the state's ability to enact violence that goes unquestioned, racism is just a really bad idea. It's a repugnant idea that should be rejected. But if let's assume the worst that Chauvin was acting with racial malice, if he weren't put in a position and invested with the power to enact violence against a person without provocation, his racism would have stayed in his head for the most part. And instead, we give people under the guise of protection, under whatever level you want to give it, we give these people power, and then we act surprised when things go wrong. So I know that doesn't really address your question, but it's just... It's the overwhelming thought that keeps coming back to me. This all starts to be a bit insincere because we never stop to think, why did we give these people this kind of power in the first place? Why did we build the system this way to start with? Um, so there's there's a new development that came out this morning. I don't know if you've seen this uh, with regard to. Uh, George Floyd and Derek Chauvin, uh, CBS News released a report at about 8.30 this morning uh, that basically details a relationship uh, that the two had. Okay. They, both, yes, yes. Uh, they both worked together. Um, they both worked together at a nightclub. Um, and one of their co-workers basically said, yeah, there was friction there that Chauvin in particular was tended to be very aggressive. Uh uh, towards patrons of the nightclub 
Um, and, you know, obviously there's not as much information as we want to know here, but it, it sort of feeds into your point that um, there's, you know, be it, be it racism uh, or be it some other motivating factor, it was allowed to uh, be used uh, as a motivation to commit this heinous act of violence. Uh, now, I, I do want to push back just a little bit because um, what we're going to figure out is uh, whether or not Chauvin legally, and I mean strictly legally speaking, because I don't know of anyone who's looked at this situation and said, no, that was okay. I've heard plenty of, well, we need to wait on more evidence as if that's going to make it better. Um, but I've, I've not heard anyone out and out say what Chauvin did is okay, and I'm thankful that I've not heard that. But um, what we're going to find out is whether legally speaking or not, he, what he did was OK. Uh, you know, he's going to go to trial. And so uh, and, you know, he's been charged with second degree murder. And if this relationship turns out to be some significant thing, uh, that that charge could be up to first degree murder at some point. Uh, they, they may end up pursuing that. I, I kind of doubt they will, because, you know, there's that that becomes something very difficult to prove. Unless the information is just or the evidence is just overwhelming. Um, right. But uh, if I may, go ahead. Uh, just interject very quickly. Uh, very sorry. Uh, the distinction, uh, because a few weeks back we were both kind of fuzzy on what exactly quantifies third, second, and first. Uh, we all know. Well, the two of us know that first degree requires premeditation, but essentially the differences are. Uh, third degree is for unintentional or reckless murder. Second degree is intentional, but not premeditated. Uh, essentially, by acting in a way that you knew would or would or could potentially cause a person's death and just not caring or directly doing so in the moment. So second degree, I think a strong case can be made for because, again, uh, watching him get choked out, uh, people are saying, hey, check his pulse, check his pulse. He's saying, no, I can't breathe, that sort of thing. He's got his knee on his neck. It's a very aggressive thing. And again, like Chauvin's face, like it's not just malicious and just, oh, I'm loving it. But it was very just indifferent. It was very, you know, this is a normal day for me. This is, you know, just out here doing my job. And this is alleged. I want to be very clear on this. I have heard allegedly that uh, there is actually recording of when uh like during this encounter uh one of the other officers said to Chauvin well hey man like he's not moving do you want to make sure he's not dead and essentially like assuming that is an accurate portrayal then second degree I think is a very easy thing to prove first degree like the confluence of events necessary for first degree to make sense here, I think is going to be very difficult to prove. But again, pardon the interruption. Oh, well, no worries. Um, you know, it, it's something where I, I just want to push back a little bit only because yes, in one sense he was put in a, uh, he was put in a position uh, based off of the, you know, just sort of the expectation of the job to where he's he's looking for crime. 
Um, at the same time, in theory, and we'll see if it happens in practice, uh, but in theory, there are restrictions against exactly this. Um, you know, and, and that doesn't necessarily make everything better. It's certainly not going to bring back George Floyd. Uh, but when we, when we look at it this way, uh, when we look at it from the perspective that, no, he was not in a position to do this. He went well beyond, um, he went well beyond, uh, what he was supposed to do, uh, as far as what the job required, uh, what was expected of him. Um, legally, we're going to discover whether or not that's the case. I think on a personal level, I've already figured that out. Uh, I, I think on a personal level, I'm, I'm squarely on the side of he went way too far. Uh, and be it uh, blatant racism or be it uh, this grudge, perhaps, that he had, this relationship he had. And, and who's to say the friction wasn't racially motivated? I mean, I, you know, there's there's any number of reasons that there could have been friction in that relationship um, I, I'll be curious, uh, to see what happens. I, I just, I'm of the opinion and it is just an opinion, but I'm of the opinion that any sort of, uh, reform and any sort of, uh, uh, any sort of discussion as far as the long-term, uh, standing of police departments and cities, especially in Minneapolis where this has taken place and they've had to deal with the fallout on it of it uh, most immediately, um, those those should probably be we should be having those discussions, but those decisions probably shouldn't be made at least until uh, the Justice Department has had an opportunity to get this right. Um, you know, because people are going to do horrible things. Uh, you don't want to enable it, uh, and, and that I think points to where you're at in this discussion is you don't want to enable people uh, to do horrible things. Uh, but people are going to do horrible things. Um, it's a question of whether or not we respond appropriately. It's a question of whether or not uh, the justice system does its job uh, in responding appropriately to horrible, horrible violations of the law, to put it mildly. Um, and so if I mean, if if he's convicted of murder, you know, he's getting he's getting well. Legally speaking, he'll be getting what he deserves. I, I think you and I probably hold that he won't quite get what he deserves. But um, legally speaking, the justice system will have done its job, and uh, it doesn't bring back George Floyd, but it accomplished something. And the something it accomplished, in addition to the immediate punishment, is uh, throwing out a deterrent. Uh, that has been sorely needed for a long time, like you said, but but especially the past decade as as the evidence has started to mount uh, in recent years, at least uh, as it's presented to the general public. Right. This, this sort of stuff has been going on for years and years and years, like you've said. Uh, but with the advent of social media, with the advent of cell phones, having cameras, with the advent of all these different things. Um, it's become, I, I mean, I'm much more aware of these things now than I was when I started college in 09. Um, and that's not just simply I'm getting older. That's me just having more access to things. And I think that's true for most people, regardless of age, um, that we, we have more access to the evidence. We have more access to these incidents now than we've ever had. And so we're going to respond differently now than we ever had before. Um, 
I want to shift gears just ever so slightly uh, and, and talk about something encouraging regarding this. Um, I have seen uh, more and more people, uh, and I mentioned this last week, but it's really become apparent over the past week. I've seen more and more people uh, react. I'm not going to say positively. I'll say compassionately uh, to everything that's happened um, since the fallout of, of or everything that's happened since the murder of George Floyd. People reacting with compassion, people engaging in discussions, people. Of course, there are some sticks in the mud who, who just don't want anything to do with this discussion. Uh, but people actually listening for once, whereas, you know, five years ago, four years ago, especially when uh, when Kaepernick uh, started kneeling, the entire discussion in a lot of areas started and ended with, well, I guess I just won't watch the NA or the NFL anymore. I don't know if you've noticed that yourself or not, um, but I've seen online a pretty significant uh, movement toward listening to voices that might be described as previously being marginalized in a lot of different ways. Um, and, you know, a, a few people at least basically coming out and saying, hey, we got this wrong. Let, you know, help us get it right. Um, that, that's that been encouraging to me. I don't know if you've seen uh, much of that yourself uh, or if that's just me in my own little bubble seeing that. But I uh, it's definitely something I've noticed over the past week or so It's just. Uh, the the open mindedness that people at least seem uh, to exhibit uh, really, really come into fruition over the past week or so. Yeah, I, I don't think you're alone in that. Uh, I mean, we we are in different parts of the country uh, are we spend our time differently, mainly because, well, you have a wife and kids and a job and all of these things. But um, just as a very positive development from my side of the world in little northeast Mississippi, there were protests uh, last Friday and Saturday in the Corinth area, and they went off without a hitch. I don't know exactly how many people showed up, uh, things like that, but it was announced in advance, and and people showed up, uh, voices were heard. And again, as far as I know, I haven't seen any reports of violence or anything like that. It went off without a hitch. And if you told me five years ago, let's just say, that there would be a protest about uh, about police um, brutality against minorities in northeast Mississippi, I would have just kind of looked at you. I'm not sure about that. Not even so much because everyone in Corinth is just this rotten person, but because it's a small place and it's tucked away. Like, like when I say, oh, I'm from da da da, they say, people say, where? And then I say, oh, I'm from Corinth. Where? Tupelo. Where? And I just give up because like, there's a tangible point at which it's okay. I don't know where that is or what people from there are like. And so it's nice that, uh, a little part of the world who previously uh, we were most well known for slug burgers. It's nice to see, okay, yes, there are people that are willing to stand up and voice their concerns, even if I have deep seated ideological disagreements 
with them. It's good that they are making themselves heard. Uh, like even if I think someone's wrong, I think they should be free to voice their wrong opinions. And seeing people voice themselves right or wrong and do so peacefully without violence being initiated against them, without their initiating violence against others, that's great. And that's deeply encouraging to me. Yeah, well, and, you know, on the one hand, I, I think there are definitely going to be some companies uh, who come out and take advantage of the situation just for the publicity, just like there are politicians who come out and take advantage of it just for the political gain. But at the same time, you know, there's been a lot of just, you know, if I can just say random citizens, random civilians who have come out um, trying to be trying to engage in as healthy of a discussion as possible um, in such a way that they don't really have a lot to gain, uh, but they might have something to lose. Um, you know, this is an issue that if people aren't, I don't want to say delicate, but if they're not uh, conscious of the fact that there is disagreement over various different things, uh, on one extreme, the fact that, you know, there are still racists, right? I mean, there are still people who, uh, who were at least on some level fine with what happened. I don't know them personally, or at least they've not revealed themselves personally to me. Um, but there are still people who are fine with what happened. Um, you know, there, there are some relationships there that are being put at risk that maybe need to be put at risk, but, uh, that are being put at risk because an opinion is being expressed. Um, you know, and so it's, it's something where you've got some people who don't really have much to gain, uh, other than education, which is extremely valuable, but, you know, not if you're looking at it from a strictly, you know, how to win friends and influence people type of situation. Um, you know, there, but there's been, there's been a lot of encouraging, uh, discussion coming from social media, uh, people, who I thought I would never uh, see uh, stand up for what's right in a situation like this um, have done so uh, and offered their support and offered to be, uh, you know, uh, basically offered the fact that they, they, they don't know everything about everything that's going on um, and they're going to try to do better. Uh, Those, those words, those are the sorts of words that ring hollow coming from, uh, larger groups that have something to gain, but they mean something when they come from certain people, especially when they come from people who you'd never expect to say that. Um, and so I, I've been encouraged by that. Um, Sam, we're going to shift gears hard here because I need to ask you a very important question. Are you ready? Oh, I'm always ready, Chris. Sam, what's happening in Seattle? <laughs> I've just... I've been smiling like a moron this entire time, even though like we've been having a very serious discussion. Like I'm just, I've, I've, my face feels much like I would imagine Moses's face felt as he came down from the mountain shining and the, the residual resplendence of the Lord, because what's happening in Seattle is what happens when you have anarchy run by people who can't think further than the distance from their 
elbow to their fingertips. Uh, what is called the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Don't ask me why it's called that. I assume it's because it is centered around the Capitol Building in Seattle. That is my best guess. I don't know anything about Seattle. I don't live there. I don't plan on going there anytime soon outside of like a trip or something like that. Anyway, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, um, they've basically just kind of not even so much walled themselves off because you can still walk through their people drive through there, that sort of thing. But they've tried to basically have their own little community in the middle of Seattle. And this is, it's about two days old, give or take, um, maybe a day, but I'm, I'm going to say two to be generous. And they've already run into massive structural problems. The first uh, was reported on Twitter, uh, want to uh, double check my sources because I always like to cite sources and all that good stuff when I'm able to. But um, per uh, uh, one, uh, her uh, handle on Twitter is Anarchomastia uh, said Alerta 2. The homeless people we invited took away all the food at the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. We need more food to keep the area operational. Please, if possible, bring vegan meat substitutes, fruits, oats, soy products, etc. Anything to help us eat. And it's just you read that and you think, okay, it's bad that people don't have food. It is hilarious that this is entirely self-inflicted. And so there's that. There's also the fact that in less than a week, because people always talk about, oh, well, if you... If you have anarchy, you'll just end up with feudalism or you'll just have warlords. That's already happened in the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone with one Roz Simone, that's his stage name, and uh, he and a group of people armed uh, with firearms and some other implements are basically kind of patrolling the area, policing and enforcing their will. There's already allegedly... Uh, uh, video of them assaulting people for tagging over other people's graffiti, that sort of thing. And I just look at that, and again, on on one hand, those are serious things that are happening. You have uh, you have a food shortage, even in a relatively small and contained place. Uh, you have a food shortage, and you have wandering, like we'll say, vigilantes. But on the other hand, I look at that and it is just so absurd that these people, they tried to do this bold and daring thing and it's falling apart as they're building it. It's, it's just incredible to me. And like, I laugh at it because again, it is just so absurd. And that's the only word I can really think of to describe it because it is these people who Almost certainly were all about abolishing the police, about doing this and that. And they tried to build their own little personal zone for themselves. And they didn't think things like this through. And it's case in point for why people say that anarchy is chaos. No, anarchy is chaos if you let people who don't think about what they're doing do it and run along and be the people in charge of it, so to speak. 
Because realistically, most people live in a sort of self-inflicted anarchy every day because they don't constantly interact with their rulers. And so it's just, it's very, it's very just humorous to me to watch this fall apart in real time, mainly because I love to watch political leftists fail. I know that sounds petty and vindictive of me, but, you know, that's just part of who I am. I like watching people I disagree with who try to, in some way or another, do something that would prove me wrong, fail brutally to do so. That just that fills me with joy inside. And I hope that they're able to get food. I hope that no one get, else gets hurt by Simone and his group of people. But it's just I look at it and I just think of this meme of Woody from Toy Story of all people. He uh, tipping his hat and saying, look, I know you're having a rough time, but just remember you did this to yourself. And I just I love that. I love just watching things fail in real time. It's, uh, <clears throat> you know, the the interesting part of this to me is that's sort of an extreme, extreme uh, test case of some of the things we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, as far as uh, as far as defunding the police and whatnot, that you know, this is there are better approaches to this, and and you sort of hinted at that that the uh, you know the people who initiate this experience or experiment really have to know what they're doing. Um, but it's uh they're they're probably hurting their own cause without really being aware of it um what often happens in a situation like this is that uh the people who do something like this and hurt the cause whatever the cause is um will put the blame on other people uh or other entities well it didn't work because uh this didn't happen or <clears throat> these people got in the way or I'm going to stop you right there, Chris. I'm going to sum it all up. That wasn't real anarchy. Yeah, that wasn't real communism. That wasn't real secular humanism. Um, You know, it's never really been tried. Uh, You know, and so the people who are directly involved, they they have to own up to it. So they they defend it uh, by using something else as a scapegoat. And the people who aren't directly involved, you're going to see come out and just dismiss it as being something less than. Um, and so it's it, it, it's funny and sad at the same time. Like you said, uh, there are some terrible things going on, um, but there are some terrible things going on aside from the looting. Um, the the construct that set up this particular uh, uh, this particular situation was wrong in and of itself and so i uh we'll see well we'll see where they go from here um we need to talk about one more thing uh and it's something that we've kind of buried the past couple of weeks because of more important things going on uh but there is a situation uh going on in china uh and especially how we interact with that situation i'm going to be sure i've got the exact words uh in front of me here um, so 
back on May 27th, so this would be about two weeks ago. Um, uh, let me. Oh, oh, I do not want to subscribe. I think I've got an account with the New York Times here. I've got the article uh, pulled up. May 27th, uh, 2020, Edward Wong of the New York Times posted an article. This is just one news source you can go to to look for it. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced on Wednesday that the State Department no longer considered Hong Kong to have significant autonomy under Chinese rule, a move that indicated the Trump administration was likely to end some or all of the United States government's special trade and economic relations with the territory in southern China. Um, Sam, how significant is this? It's something we've buried because there have been more, I want to say, urgent matters to attend to. Um, But how, how significant is it? Uh, that the U.S. Uh, has come out and basically said we don't recognize Hong Kong as being uh, autonomous, at least on an economic level. It depends on what um, it depends on what the U.S. does afterward, uh, because uh, Wong, I, I don't want to misquote him or put words in his mouth, but he was very careful to say potentially uh, this could change treatments. It could be because I haven't followed up on this like I should have. It could be just a recognition of China's refusal to let Hong Kong be free. And so it could just be fine if, fine, we'll use your language and we'll still treat Hong Kong like an independent entity. I could be mistaken about that. And like I said, again, I haven't followed up as I should have. But if it is just a change in language without a change in treatment towards China, towards Hong Kong and China, whatever, semantics. If, however, it is a uh, – if, however, it brings, a, for instance, imposing tariffs on things that come out of Hong Kong or it ends up imposing specific penalties on Hong Kong, that's bad because Hong Kong uh, – I have a special affection for the people of Hong Kong because they are they are resisting in the streets regularly, constantly against one of the last remaining functional communist regimes in the world. And China is not a purely communistic place anymore. Uh, they have just enough capitalism, quote unquote, to keep themselves afloat. So basically, as far as their economic planning, they do a lot of the same things as as the United States, because the United States is a socialist nightmare scape, just like the rest of the world. Uh, but anyway, that's a different story for a different day. But uh, the Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party, especially, they have implemented a social credit system you can be penalized if you if your groceries aren't right and the idea that the government would feel the need to even like say okay well you spent two hundred dollars on groceries this week but some of that went towards alcohol well we're going to dock you on that and people say well what's the big deal about a social credit score look at north korea they have a social credit score there and one, you can't find out what your social credit score is 
And two, there's very little that you could ever begin to do to improve it. It creates functionally a caste system. And so I am on the side of protesters and the people of Hong Kong in general in resisting the Chinese government. I yearn for the day that they are free from the grasps of those villains, and I don't say that lightly. I yearn for the day that the people of China are free from the grasp of the Chinese Communist Party, and I will feel no sympathy for the people in charge of that party when hopefully they get their palaces are stormed by the masses who are tired of being under their boots. Well, I, uh, I, I do know as far as how the U.S. treats them, my understanding is because the U.S. doesn't regard Hong Kong as being autonomous, and I could be completely wrong here, but my understanding is any sanctions that go into place against China now also go into place against Hong Kong, which was not true uh, beforehand. Um, and so uh, over there right now, there's there's a security law, a national security law that China has enacted. Uh, they're imposing on the city of Hong Kong. Um, and so a lot of the unique freedoms, which should not be unique freedoms, as you've sort of pointed to, uh, but the uh, the unique freedoms that Hong Kong enjoys um, are likely to dissipate as they've already functionally been dissipating over the past really year or so. This a lot of these a lot of these protests gained some traction last summer. You may remember um, the NBA getting involved and completely fumbling the issue uh, last summer before the NBA season started. Uh, Blizzard Entertainment uh, got in a lot of trouble when they suspended, I think they suspended uh, an Overwatch player, maybe a Hearthstone player uh, over. I believe it was a Hearthstone, it was a Hearthstone streamer and he won a tournament and he said something about freeing Hong Kong and he got suspended and was forced to forfeit the prize money for that tournament. And I want to say they suspended the two guys that were moderating the stream. Mm-hmm. Not even like they didn't say anything that and they actually they realized as soon as he said it, they ducked. They tried to get out of sight of the camera because they knew, oh, no, uh, Activision has intense and deeply entrenched business ties with China. We're doomed if we're on camera when that is uttered. Well, well, and you see, uh, I mean, you see the entertainment industry as a whole catering things now. Now, in Blizzard's defense. um they got it half right toward the end. They they ended up uh, lessening the the punishments after some serious backlash. Uh, but it took some serious backlash to do the right thing after doing the wrong thing. Um, and even then, they, I don't think they they gave him everything he'd earned. I'm not sure what happened to those commentators. Um, but this is something that it's it's really been gaining traction for a year now. And, you know, they've uh, China and Hong Kong have lived in this. Uh, you'll see the phrase one country, two systems uh, system for about 23 years now since uh, since the UK handed over things to China, I think, or Hong Kong to China, I think, in 1997. Um, but 
with this one. Um, I'll be most curious to see uh, how the U.S. responds because um, this is this is something that is already bad. Uh, I mean, like you said, you've got people on the street protesting in Hong Kong, uh, and there is some violent oppression going on over there. But this has the potential to get much, much worse than it is, um, given the the brutal nature of the Chinese government, um, and given it seems they very, very badly uh, want Hong Kong to just be uh, a regular part of the nation um, instead of this, you know, this special segment with special treatment. Um, given that they very, very badly uh, want to uh, want to basically absorb Hong Kong into its regular governance and uh, with that implicitly deny uh, the basic human rights uh, that most of us here in America get to enjoy, most people uh, in most first world countries get to enjoy, and the Chinese uh, government is known for depriving its people. Um, I'll be curious to see how America responds. Uh, I have a hard time imagining uh, that the U.S., this, you know, this perceived bastion of freedom, bastion of democracy, although I would challenge the second one just a little bit. I think you would, too. Um, I, I have a hard time imagining the U.S. Uh, sort of sitting on its hands. And at the same time, I have a hard time imagining the U.S. wants to pick a fight with China right now. Right. And that's what worries me, because um, as you could probably figure out, I am a staunch non-interventionist. Uh, I am very anti-war, so I don't want to see it go that route, uh, both on the principle of the matter, but also because a war with China uh, is a recipe for disaster. They are a Despite how regressive and backwards they are ideologically, they are a economic superpower. And the and even just their ability to amass an army, I worry, would quickly outpace our own. Uh, even if there were a massive draft, I don't know that we could match the man-to-man. Now, technologically, I do think we have the advantage. I think that the United States would win a war with China, especially if uh, other, uh, you said first world, uh, some people now prefer developed countries decided to uh, uh, side with the United States. I think that they would. Uh, I can't imagine the United Kingdom, France, and other countries decide, oh yeah, we'll side with we'll side with this massive superpower that wants to assimilate everything. Instead, we'll we'll side with the superpower that we've sided with for a century on everything now on. But even when you get past the logistics difficulties, a war with China would be disastrous geopolitically, especially because of the fact that it would destabilize us economically 
Uh, war is not good for the economy. That is a lie perpetuated by the fact that we didn't have to deal very much with infrastructure concerns and like having to deal with the fact that a war was being waged on our own soil during the first and second world wars. Um, wars are disastrous for the countries that they're actually fought in. And so, uh, and a economic disaster for China would deal massive blow for us because we have tied ourselves up economically with the Chinese. And then there's also the fact that China keeps North Korea on life support. Uh, your use of the phrase like two, two countries, one system, like or two systems, one play. I, I don't want to put yeah, words two, in your mouth. Two, what you two, one country, two systems. Right, one country, two systems. That even that makes me think of North Korea because North Korea, in their eyes, there's not North and South Korea. There's Korea. And there's the part of Korea that isn't ready to admit that it's Korea. And so, but anyway, and that would be disastrous. That would lead to even more unimaginable suffering for 20 million plus Koreans. And so again, like war is in some ways arguably worse than hell. And that sounds weird for a devout Christian to say, but hear me out. Now, this is not original to me. This is goodness. This was said on an episode of MASH. Ostensibly, everyone in hell deserves to be there for one reason or another. Wars bring about the desolation and devastation, even of people who do not deserve what it brings. And so I hope that it does not come to that. Uh, I would much rather see just a total cutting off of economic relationships with China and saying, as long as you continue to be a place that oppresses its people in the way that you do, we will not we will not do business with you for better or worse. And other countries following that same route, because. Economic superpowers only remain economic superpowers as long as people are actually doing business with them. China would collapse in on itself, just like any other country, if every other country in the world stopped doing business with them. And so it would force change very quickly. It would be catastrophic at first, but I think that would be better than a actual war. And if we decide to go the proxy war route, that's not any better. No. Because the I, proxy war is just it's just it just draws out the price of war being paid. So to that point, um, you know, one of the things that was discussed and we may have talked about right when all this coronavirus stuff started, uh, right when the quarantine started in most parts of the country. Um, one of the things that was discussed is the fact that, you know, we would be having far fewer issues right now if. A lot of our manufacturing uh, was done in-house, as it were, um, and companies have discussed and some indeed just flat out have uh, moved or at least built uh, manufacturing facilities stateside now uh, to protect themselves against this. Because uh, while the quarantine really started in mid-March, some of the ep- economic fallout, fallout started even before that here because 
there were products from China as well as other places, but chiefly China, uh, that weren't able to be shipped because for a while there were uh, entire plants closed down in China because of their quarantine, their outbreak. And so, you know, there's it makes economic sense to move some of that manufacturing uh, back uh, back home, if you will. Uh, and now it's going to make straight up political sense to do that, too. Um, and decent human rights sense to do that, too. You know, we give. Uh, we give Nike's kind of the classic example, but we give all the, some of these large companies who run sweatshops, you know, they they get plenty of flack. Uh, probably not enough, but plenty of flack uh, for how they operate their businesses. Um, you know, basically taking advantage of the fact that uh, they're using a workforce that doesn't have near the rights uh, that their customers do. And, uh, you know, and, and, and that's not to speak about minimum wage laws or anything like that, just, you know, some of the oppression that takes place over in China and other areas. This gives them an opportunity. Uh, they've had two, they've got two excuses that have been handed to them on a platter within the past year uh, to move things back stateside. Um, and if your manufacturing is stateside, you, uh, there are more jobs here in the country. Uh, there are more uh, you know, it, it's products become, I don't know if they become cheaper, but that's not really necessarily the point of all this. Um, the security that if comes, I may interject, go ahead. They'll become drastically more expensive. Yep. And the, that's just the question. Like, is that something that people are willing to do? And that's not just true of Nike, uh, Apple. If they were to bring their manufacturing stateside, uh, my phone that cost $1,200 roughly, at launch would have been nearly $2,400 at launch. And some people just, they are not willing to do that. They are not willing to uh, pay that price. But that's that's one out of many factors. Well, and, and one of the things, um, one of the things too that's true about that is your profit margin, uh, you know, is... So the the example that gets bandied about quite a bit, um, and I think it's worth pointing out in part because I hate them with a fiery passion. Uh, you're familiar with the Beats by Dre headphones, right? Yeah, they cost like $150 to buy, but they cost like $20 if that to make. Yeah, so on average, a pair of Beats by Dre costs uh, uh, cost $14 to, to produce. Um they will retail for as much as $700. They're awful, awful quality headphones for what it's worth. Um, oh, yeah. No, I've heard about that, too. Like, I'm not an audiophile, but like, I am. <laughs> even I know that they're just yeah. – they're, like, middling at best. Yeah, you can, uh, you can get yourself a decent – you can get yourself a very good pair of headphones for, you know, $50, $75 and – the nicest pair of headphones that 99% of people ever need for $150, and it won't be Beats by Dre, I can tell you that. Um, and so you ask yourself the question, okay, um, what what's your acceptable profit margin? Uh, what are you, are you willing to take some sort of a loss to bring things back home? Because the other thing you have to keep in mind is that uh, there is a certain appeal 
and, and it's not as true now as it was maybe 15 years ago. But there's a certain appeal to people buying made in American products, made in America products. Um, there's more trust. There's more willingness to support uh, your own. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's going to raise your revenue by by 10 percent or 15 percent, but it will have a positive impact. Um you know, being able to put "Made in America" on the box, or you know, you know, on your on, on the tag for your clothes, or whatever it is, um, that there that has a positive effect uh, on on uh, on your sales. And so, you know, if if companies look at their profit margin, and I'm not going to tell anyone that they should chop their profit margin in half. If people are still willing to buy your phone at twenty four hundred dollars. Sell it at $2,400 and keep your same profit margin. Um, but if you're willing to cut it, I I, I don't understand <clears throat> the need. Uh, I, I think I'm, I'm of the opinion Beats by Dre would probably sell more uh, at, uh, you know, it, even if it meant losing a little bit of their what right now is over 1,000% profit margin on their cheapest uh, pair of headphones. Um if if they cut their profit margin, bring production back home. Um, and what we're really talking about here is redundant production within the U.S. We're not necessarily even talking about these companies completely leaving China, although I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to that. Um, but what we're talking about is, is having a redundant plant or two uh, within the U.S. That way, if, you know, if we go through this again next spring, then if one of your plants shut down, then you're not just completely shut down. You may remember when all this started, you may not. Uh, Nintendo Switches uh, were hard to find. The best-selling console uh, of the past, like, five years, um, and what's on pace to be probably the second or third best-selling video game console ever. Uh, we're not sure if it's going to beat the Wii. We're not sure if it's going to beat the PS2 yet. Um but what's on track to be one of the best-selling video game consoles ever was out of stock everywhere because they simply stopped making them because of the, uh, the production cost. Now, granted, Nintendo is a primarily Japanese company uh, with, you know, uh, divisions in the U.S. and the EU. Um, but at the same time, if you have redundant facilities, it just makes good business sense in light of the fact that you know, we we may go through something like this again. And now for American companies in particular, it makes good political sense to make the move too. Um, you know, it one of the jarring things to me, uh, I appreciate, even if I if even if I'm not convinced it's sincere, I appreciate the fact that there are companies coming out and saying, Hey, look, we don't stand for racism. There's a couple of companies that have come out and really gotten this wrong. Uh, we don't have time to talk about it today, but the CEO or president or whatever it is of CrossFit basically just canceled himself with some comments he's made recently. And Reebok is now terminating their relationship with CrossFit. I think ESPN is doing the same. Um, uh, the end of CrossFit. Yeah. That is just. Oh, I could only dream. Yeah, they'll, they'll figure because with the end of CrossFit comes the end of CrossFitters. Yeah, well, they'll they'll just migrate to a different thing. Um, but when it when it comes to these companies, I I can appreciate the fact that they've come out against uh, against 
racism. Um, you know, I uh, I can appreciate the fact that they've made some publics. I, I can appreciate the fact that they that Ben and Jerry's went about as ham as anyone on the topic. Um, but at the same time, with the China situation, which admittedly has been a little bit buried uh, because of some some issues that hit closer to home, um, you've not seen the same sorts of stances taken. And in fact, if we go back to last summer and last fall, you've seen companies really, really miss the mark with this. Um, and it's because there's a lot of money in China. And as far as the ent- entertainment industry is concerned in particular, there's a ton of money in China. Um, oh, know, yeah, just uh, by um, – very sorry to interject. It, go ahead. But just by way of example. Um, most movies that are released, uh, they end up making most of their money. They make back their budgets. And again, just as a quick point of reference, when you're trying to figure out a budget for a movie, a good rule of thumb is to take the production budget and double it to also account for the advertising budget. And so like people wonder like, why do so many Transformers movies get made? Because when they air in China, people like millions of people watch them and they make their money back. And so they figure, oh, wait, this is profitable. And so that's a huge industrial and economic force. Well, I, uh, you know, I can. When I when I look at that situation, um, when it comes to racism, uh, in America, it's something that most companies are going to be able to say a lot. And they're, you know, I've seen these different companies come out and stand against racism. And it's good that they're making these public proclamations. And it's good that they donate by and large, although I've got a problem with a few of the organizations I see bandied about. The problem is there are some real human rights issues taking place in an area where they can actually make a difference, right? You know, the as far as here in America, there's very little uh, that Nike is going to be able to do uh, functionally to combat racism. Now, uh, they've promoted the living daylights out of Colin Kaepernick and give him a platform. Um, and there have been others who uh, who have done what they can. But functionally speaking, as a company, it is relatively little to what they could do with regard to Hong Kong. That's not to say that Hong Kong is more or less important uh, than the racial issues we're going, uh, we're suffering with here. Uh, The racial issues we have to deal with here in this country. I don't mean uh, to suggest that one is more or less important than the other. All I'm suggesting is that these companies have something they can do that is influential in a way in Hong Kong and in China that is not as influential here just by the nature of the issue and by the nature of where it's located. And so, right. They can move the needle more. They can, um, you know, and, and, you know, the, when you see companies sort of back off and say, uh, you know, well, we're not interested in doing that. Or when you see NBA players who don't have a clue about what's going on over there, basically saying, well, you don't really understand the issue. No, I understand the issue. I understand that you're in it for the money. I understand, you know, when you see nine figures worth of money, if not more, 
coming into your league from China every year when all you have to do is go play a few preseason games over there. No, I, I understand what's going on. Uh, don't, oh, don't, yeah, no, and there's nothing wrong with making money. Just nothing, be honest about what you're doing. Yep, and, uh, you know, and, and, and that's affected sports. Uh, primarily, it's affected uh, basketball because basketball has such a strong relationship uh, with China. Uh, Yao Ming sort of uh, started that uh, uh, as far as put it into full force, and, and Yao was good for the league, and the league was good for China. Um but also, you know, the NHL, you know, my uh, my league, I care about the most more than everything else combined. Uh, they're set to play some preseason games at some point over in China. Um, you know, I don't I don't want to see them uh, just sort of be ignorant of the issues going on over there. I can guarantee you, uh, given the uh, the various different backgrounds of players. Uh, and how outspoken some of the NHL players can be politically about their own home country's uh, problems, I guarantee you they're not gonna they're not gonna respond exactly the same way. Uh, but there's also not quite that money going into it. There's some, but it, it's it's something where uh, I I appreciate um, I appreciate what different companies are trying to do with regard to uh, the issues of racism uh, in our own country. But it means a lot less when you turn a blind, a blind eye to blatant human rights violations in your backyard, uh, in your pl- uh, around your plants over in over in China. Um, this would be different if it's like, you know, there are human rights issues going on in a random place somewhere in the world where you're not at. Well, you know, that's not your backyard. It's still a terrible thing. But what are you supposed to do about it? With with a lot of these larger companies, they have something that they can do. Uh, very clearly uh, to to if not help the situation, then at least put pressure on those who can change the situation and they're not doing it. That's frustrating. That's unbelievably frustrating. Right. And there are going to be people that question the the actual effect of economic sanction, restriction and excuse me, cutting away. Excuse me, but I would just offer for their consideration, the Soviet Union didn't fall because we broke them militarily. We we like we spent years funding different little insurgent groups, the Mujahideen, that I know that's one that I never shut up about, and people are probably sick and tired of hearing me mention them. But that's not how the Soviet Union fell. The Soviet Union fell because people inside the union were able to look outward and see why is that person's standard of living so much better than mine? Like even the wealthy people in the, so in Soviet bloc countries were able to look out and say, this random person has such a better life than I do. They were able to, for instance, even just watch TV and see like, wait, this person that works as a, like a, basically a maid for this wealthy couple they they have better clothes than I do. They dress better than I do. Meanwhile, I'm having to attend to my toiletry with newspaper. And that sort of unrest, that sort of realization that, wait, what I'm being told about how great this place is, is a lie that erodes the ability of a oppressive regime to keep power. 
That is ultimately what breaks people. Violent revolution just changes management. Real revolution, real change comes when people realize that the system they're in doesn't just need a new manager, it needs to be done away with. And you do that by showing them things that are so much better. And we can do that economically for China and the people under the boot of China. I'm content to end the podcast right there. I I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to say or not, but given the network connectivity issues and given kind of the, you know, I, I kind of just like where you ended it there. So I'm content to end it right yeah, there. Yeah. That's fine by me. All right. I'll go ahead and do the close. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to the deep in the tank podcast. We'll see you next time.